Uh, this morning we're looking at one of the most extraordinary events uh, in the Jesus' earthly ministry, the event commonly known as Transfiguration. The story is full of intriguing details and uh, we can spend hours unpacking them and uh, be fascinated by how all these details make uh, allusions to all parts of the rest of the Bible. Um, it just demonstrates that the Bible is an in- integrated whole. You know, where the Bible is made up of 66 individual books, but because the ultimate author is God himself, um, it is no surprise that, uh, that all the various parts of the Bible are linked to one another in the most amazing way. And uh, as we work our way through this passage, we'll see how uh, it, it kind of holds the whole of the Bible together uh, into such a short uh, verses. As we shall see in just a moment, this is an event that looks backward to various other parts of the Old Testament, but it also draws our eyes forward to the things that are ours only by promise at this stage. And we shall see how the Bible is tightly knit together unit uh, with the various parts uh, shining light on all the other parts. But more importantly... This crucial story further unveils the glory of the Lord Jesus. It once again reminds us what an amazing Lord you and I are serving and it urges us to keep on trusting him and him only. So let's just do a quick recap of the story and to see what we are to deal with here. So if you were up on that mountain, what would you have seen? Well... One, Jesus went up on a mountain with three chosen disciples, uh, James, uh, Peter, James, and John. And if you're thinking, well, why just them and not the others? Well, you're on to something. Uh, we'll come back to that in just a minute. Two, and there Jesus' appearance uh, was transfigured or transformed. His face shone like sun and his clothes became uh, white as light in verse 2. Now, it, it begs the question, uh, doesn't it? What does it mean? Uh, Why did this happen? Uh, How does this help us to live our Christian life here and now? Point three. We see that Moses and Elijah appeared on the mountain standing with Jesus. And you have to ask, well, why? Why were they there? What were they doing together? Now, at this point, uh, it it might be worthwhile noting that um, uh, Luke told us in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, Luke chapter 9, verse 31, that they were speaking about Jesus' departure or exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. You know, they were talking about Jesus' impending death on a cross. Imagine that. Wouldn't you want to have, have been a fly on the wall to overhear the conversation? What an amazing conversation that it would have been. Jesus, Moses and Elijah talking one with one another about what is about to happen in Jerusalem upon the cross. What an amazing theological discussion that would have been. Well, point five. Sorry, point four. Peter spoke some gibberish. Uh, as he often does. Um, He didn't say mate, but he said something about tents. Although one might say it's not such a bad suggestion uh, putting up three tents, Um, but Luke chapter 9 verse 33 tells us that he said these things without knowing what he was was saying. He was just out of his mind and he just wanted to fill the gap and something just came out of his mouth and happened to be building up three tents. 
you got to love Peter. Right? By the way, if you're in the habit of making suggestions uh, that might, in your own imagination, might be helpful, think very carefully whether you're speaking like Peter or not. You know, you, you might be you might be suggesting something, but in the, uh, 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 the minds of the hearers, you might be speaking something totally irrelevant, totally unhelpful. So be careful in how you uh, speak. Five, a bright light overshadowed them, and there was a voice from the cloud. And those of you who attended the growth group during the week uh, would have noted the remarkable similarity between this event with the story that we read in Exodus 24, where Moses and the, and the three others went up on a mountain which was covered with the thick clouds, and they there met God and saw God, and extraordinarily, we're told that they ate and drank, I presume, with God. What an amazing event! Four human beings went up on a mountain, and they saw God, and they met God, and they, well, they were not killed. In fact, they spent so many times, days up on the mountain, fellowshipping with God. What an amazing event that he's referring to. And Matthew wants us to look at this, this passage and to remember that amazing event that has happened in the book of Exodus. Six, Jesus comforts them with a touch and said to them, Rise and have no fear. Seven, on their way down to the, from the mountain, Jesus commands the disciples not to tell anyone about the vision that they saw until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Strangely, these words from Jesus triggers that the disciples ask a question to Jesus about Elijah. Uh, we, the, the, so the, the second part of the, the passage in our focus that, uh, turns away from Moses to, to Elijah. But you might be thinking, What? What is this question, where is this question coming from? I mean, he's talking about uh, rising from the dead and the, the most natural question would have been, what do you mean rising from the dead? Are you going to die or something? That would have been a natural question to ask. But that is not the question the disciples ask. They ask, well, why does it say that Elijah must come first? And you might be thinking, what's going on here? It took me a while to figure it out. And finally, the passage concludes with Jesus teaching them about his impending suffering. At the moment of glory, where his power and his authority, his grandeur is now on full display, what does he speak about? He speaks about his impending suffering. Now, this is what has happened on the mountain, but what does it all mean? And more importantly, in what ways does this edify us and help us to live our life as Christians day to day? Well, in order to work this out, what we need to do is to get up on the mountain and look back. When we look back uh, uh, from that mountain, and uh, what, what do we see? We see Moses and Elijah, and I already asked the question, why is it that Moses and Elijah turned up at this point? Uh, I suppose at this part of the, the, the passage, uh, Elijah sort of receives, and, and we don't see him very much, but the focus and attention is very much upon Moses. And we're going to come back to Elijah a little bit later on. But 
but Moses now is at the, at the, the forefront of uh, the people's mind. Uh, this is not the first time uh, Moses seemed to appear uh, in, in the book of our, uh, in, in this gospel. We've already noted. Uh, 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 sorry, we, we've already noted throughout the, the Matthew's gospel that Matthew draws a comparison between Jesus and Moses several times. Uh, way back in uh, chapter five, verses, uh, uh, chapters five to seven, uh, when we were working our way through the Sermon of the Mountain, uh, that Jesus repeated these words: "You have heard it. Uh, you have heard that it was said uh, in, the, in the law of Moses, so to speak." But I say to you, Jesus deliberately um, raises the point about hearing Moses and how you're supposed to properly hear Moses. Why does Jesus do this? What is the point that he was making when he was doing this? What he wanted us to teach, he wanted to teach us that to, uh, us and his hearers that he was the only one who could properly understand what God revealed to his people through Moses. Furthermore, Jesus, Jesus was teaching his, disciple, his disciples and hearers that he was the only one who could live by such revelation. He came not to abolish the law, but to fulfil them, so to speak, in chapter 5, verse 17. But imagine this. As Moses appeared upon a mountain and a cloud came over and there was a bright light, unmistakably, Matthew is wanting us to, to remember that extraordinary event that has happened upon the mountain where God came down to meet his people and Moses, the, the intermediary between God and his people, talking face to face with God and engaging with God and with his people. God in his mercy and kindness is ready to engage with his people and graciously guide them and, and uphold them and protect them and lead them into the promised land. It is that event that is um, on view here. Jesus is not only the, 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 the revealer of God's word, he is actually the final word. Unless we understand his word, we will not have properly understood what God was speaking to Moses. And someone greater than Moses is now here. But that is not the only thing that uh, we are reminded here. There is something else that has happened on the mountain that makes us to look back uh, elsewhere. There came a voice from the cloud, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Verse 5. And this is not the first time that these words were spoken um, uh, in, in uh, Matthew's Gospel. You might recall back in chapter 3, verse 17, when Jesus came out of the river after being baptized by John the Baptist, a voice thundered from heaven and uh, there came exactly the same words. Well, why repeat them? You know, well, when the words are repeated, what does it normally mean? It's because they are very, very important, so important that they needed to be emphasized. So in what ways are they so important? They were important because they reveal the identity of Jesus. They reveal God's intention and plan in sending his son into the world. 
the first part, this is my beloved son, is an allusion to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. In that psalm, God speaks about setting his anointed, his Messiah, the chosen king, upon his throne in Zion. And this king whom God calls his beloved son in verse 7 of Psalm 2 is the one who will triumph over all of God's enemies and rule over God's kingdom with justice and peace. The second part, uh, with whom I am well pleased, is an allusion to uh, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Uh, it, might be, it, it might be a good idea for you to turn to Isaiah 42. Have a look at it. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Because so many of you guys now use um, smartphones and things to uh, look up the Bible passage. I have no idea whether you're actually looking at it or not. In, in the olden days when people were using the Bible, you could hear uh, the, the flipping page, um, but I'm not hearing that much, so I have no idea whether you're actually looking up or not, but I trust that you are. Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in, in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a, faint, uh, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice, and he will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. The very last part is interesting, isn't it? The, the coastlands. Everyone who is living on the edge of the world, they are waiting for him to bring about God's law, God's word. Now, Isaiah 42 is a very important part of the Old Testament uh, that we should all be very familiar with. Uh, If you're not, uh, I strongly urge you and encourage you to go home and uh, study Isaiah 42. It is a very, very important part of the Bible. It contains, first of what is commonly known as the servant songs. There are four of them in Isaiah, and they all speak about a very special servant of God who seemed to play a really, really important role in order to accomplish what God has intended for his people by suffering a great deal. And that's why the servant is often referred to as a suffering servant. The most well-known song is, of course, found in Isaiah 53, where we find these famous words, 53 verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgression and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here is a suffering servant, the one who came into this world sent by God in order to go through some sort of suffering and pain, maybe even death, in order to bring peace and restoration to God's people. So here in the voice from the clouds are the two Old Testament ideas put side by side. One about the one all-conquering king who is a mighty, with a mighty scepter to rule the world with, and the other about a suffering servant who is despised and abandoned by everyone, and yet being a key person in bringing God's blessing to his people. 
it's important to note that this extraordinary event took place soon after Peter declaring Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, chapter 16, verse 16. And straight after Jesus starting to speak about his suffering and his death and his resurrection, it's all coming together now, isn't it? Yes, Jesus is the Christ. Yes, he is the chosen king. Yes, he is going to rule the world. But before that, he is going to suffer and die. And Matthew is steadily and gradually and methodically explaining to us not only who Jesus is and why, why he came into this world, he wants us to understand the way of the cross. By such progression, all the pieces in the jigsaw puzzle are coming together one by one, starting to reveal the whole picture of the, to the disciples who initially had no idea, no clue what Jesus was doing or who he was. This King of the Kings and the Lord of the Lords gains that supreme authority as the Christ as a result of undergoing suffering and death. And that's the path that he has gone before and that is the path that he is asking all his followers to take. Now, this is really is a very important and significant point that we need to, uh, to understand. In order for us to enter the same glory, the glory that Jesus entered, we must now experience suffering and pain. Let me say that again. Just as Jesus entered his glory through pain and suffering, those of us who follow him must also enter into such glory through pain and suffering. You see, this is why the prosperity gospel is so profoundly wrong. It promises all the glory in following Jesus, but without suffering. Instead, it promises instant happiness and a success here and now. They say you can bypass all the suffering. You can actually avoid unnecessary pain. Just put your hope and trust in Jesus and he's going to sort everything out and your life is going to be happy and content. Such promise sounds so enticing, especially when the rest of the society is so obsessed with comfort and convenience. Even Christian life is all about comfort and convenience. We choose to go to a church that is comfortable. We choose to stay comfortable in a church where there is much work to be done. When it doesn't sort of meet your need, you move on and find somewhere else where there are more like-minded, like-kinded people all hanging together. When we come to church, we, we enjoy ourselves talking to the people that we feel comfortable with, have no time to look out for others, people who might be struggling, people who need help. You know, sacrificing your own interests for the building up of the others in godliness and the salvation sounds so demanding. It sounds like something to be avoided at all cost, especially because the life is already so busy with family and work and holidaying and Instagramming. 
But at this very moment in which we see the glimpses of Jesus' real power and his authority, a shadow of his impending death is, is so profoundly obvious. He's suffering as a humble servant. And he's asking his followers to look at what is happening and he's asking us to enter into his glory through same path. Now, having spoken about Jesus' identity, the voice from the cloud tells us what we are to do about him. What does it say? In verse 5, it says, Listen to him. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the one who is greater than Moses, the Moses who experienced this extraordinary event upon the mountains. But now listen to this one, the one that you're seeing. The Old Testament people had to listen to Moses in order to have a life from God, you know. But now as a fulfilment of everything that God has revealed to his people in the Old Testament, Jesus is here and we are now to listen to him. You know, Moses actually prophesied about this uh, way back in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your, your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God and to see his great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among your, your own brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. This prophet, this someone who is much greater than Moses, is now finally here. And he says, you've read in the past that he was said, but I'm going to tell you with my authority what you might need to do in order to please God. What does it mean to... uh, to listen to Jesus. Well, the only proper way to listen to Jesus is to trust his word, isn't it? To trust Jesus is stop fearing the things that are not fearful, things which stop us from trusting Jesus' words. Look again at the verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them and saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Notice how the disciples were terrified. I guess uh, we can somehow sympathise with Peter, James and John, given the awe-inspiring experience that they just had. Perhaps we would have responded exactly the same way if we were on that mountain with them. But you might recall that this is not the first time that they were filled with fear. Back in chapter 14, as as they were trying to roar across the lake, a severe storm forced them into a a precarious situation. 
chapter 16, verse 26, we read, But when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water, they were terrified and they said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. It's interesting how um, uh, the being afraid or fear um, appears so often in Matthew's Gospel. Now, Jesus invites Peter to come into, uh, uh, come to him by walking on the water. water. So we, in verse 29, we, we see he said, Come, and uh, Peter got up out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Look at verse um, 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Notice how it was when uh, Peter took off his eyes uh, from Jesus. He was overcome with fear and began to sink. The point is that trusting Jesus is to fix your eyes upon him and not to be distracted by other things. Otherwise, fear and doubt will begin to creep in. You know, we often find ourselves fearing and worrying about, for example, how other people might see us, whether they will accept and approve us or not, when we try to live by Jesus' words. We take our eyes off from Jesus and are distracted by the things that we should not fear. When we try to live in holiness, not handing ourselves over to greed and sexual immorality, we often fear that we might be missing out on good, good life. Or we fear that other people might not approve us We've taken our eyes off Jesus and are distracted by the things that we shouldn't fear. But listen to Jesus and his words is to remember that at that very moment, the man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. There is a true life in trusting and living by God's word. In fact, that is the only way to live. So let's not fear the things that we don't need to fear, for we have been accepted by Jesus. We have the approval from the one whose approval is the only approval that really matters. And that's why it is important for us to observe the way the little section concludes. Notice in verse 7, But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And in verse 8, when they... And lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. You know, it's, it's as if Matthew is at pains to, to point out that there was no one else there but only Jesus. It was only Jesus that the disciples were seeing. They saw no one but Jesus and him only. And it is an important reminder for us as we deal with various trials and tribulations in our life, as we are often faced with fear, worries and concerns, that we don't get distracted. We firmly fix our eyes 
upon the one who died and rose again is now sitting at God's right hand in all power and glory and majesty. But this passage also uh, points our eyes forward because uh, uh, we have the benefit of reading this story in light of the whole picture. We know what has happened uh, at the end of the story. We saw how Jesus died on the cross. We saw how he was crucified upon a mountain with two other um, persons, not this time Elijah and Moses, but two criminals. Not with his clothes in dazzling white, but it was ripped from him and was divided up. Jesus was not shining in glory, but he was mocked and he was despised and he was crucified upon the cross. But at that moment, upon that cross, dying the most humiliating death, we see the crowning glory of our Saviour bringing the fulfilment of the amazing things that God has promised us. But it's even more than that, isn't it? The dazzling white, the shining light that Jesus' light shone in brightness is also pointing far beyond the, the cross to his resurrection body. This is a glimpse of what Jesus' glory is going to be like when he returns to life after conquering death. And so you might have uh, uh, read the book of Revelation as, uh, uh, in, your, in your growth group as you were going through. The risen Jesus. All-conquering Jesus. Powerful Jesus. Shining in glory. But the most extraordinary thing about this whole event is that Jesus, in his glory, is now inviting you and I to participate in that glory. Come with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who is sanctified and those who are sanctified are all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. The shining glory of Jesus that we see upon the mountain, uh, this mountain is an invitation, is an anticipation of the glory that you and I will share one day. I went to a, a funeral this week. Um, every time we go to a funeral, either you see the body being burnt or being buried on the ground. And as the coffin was going down, and as a dirt was going to come and cover this coffin. I imagined on the day of resurrection, 
this decomposed body, this dust, is going to all come together. God is going to knit them all together. And this person is going to burst out of the grave in glory, meeting Jesus upon the air. What a sight is that going to be? And so, friends, um, uh, as we deal with all kinds of issues, challenges, trials, difficulties in life, in our Christian life, in our church life, in our family life, we remember the risen Jesus, the shining glory that he now enjoys. And that Jesus is inviting us to take part in his glory. Endure the cross. Continue trusting him and walking with him for one day when he returns, we too shall share this shining light. What a sight is that going to be? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that our Lord Jesus endure the cross, entrusting himself into your loving care, wanting to do your will and being vindicated as a result. Father, we pray that we might walk the same path, that we may not shy away from living as Jesus' disciples, even if it means pain and suffering here and now. Father, we look forward to the day when all our pain and suffering will be taken away and our true nature being revealed. So, Father, we pray that you would enable us to help and encourage one another with these words, that we may not lose heart, that we may not overcome with fear, but keep on living our life to please you in every way. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.